Chapter 5 On the day of the funeral, the wind, which had been blowing swiftly from offshore for almost a week, ceased abruptly, leaving out of deference to the king a death-like stillness to the air. Though the streets were packed with citizens and pilgrims who had travelled to the capital for the funeral, all was quiet. On this day there was no laughter or ribaldry or political discussion. On this day no business was conducted except those wagering on which of the twins would win the joust. At dawn the castle doors were parted. The vaulted hearse bearing Audenot's body lumbered across the lowered drawbridge and down the main street of the city. It was drawn by twenty and six horses, each wearing a black caparison emblazoned in gold with Audenot's crest. Following closely behind the hearse, avoiding the horse's droppings and the muddy patches left by the reins, marched Queen Benithia, flanked by the two princes. Behind them came the council of kings and their retinues. Next strode members of the court and their attendants. Last of all trod the castle's workers, who had been given the morning off. The procession passed through the southern gate of the city and emerged onto the clearing just beyond the wall where a massive pyre had been erected. There, the royal family took their place upon a viewing stand that had been constructed a short distance from the pyre and draped in flowing black silk. Unfortunately, the funeral director had not considered the lay of the land, for one end of the stand was somewhat higher than the other, causing the royal family to list. Seeing this, everyone else who had gathered upon the field listed as well. The king's body was lifted from the hearse and placed on a long wooden pallet that had been sanded smooth and polished to a brilliant sheen for the occasion. But having it made in such a fashion was yet another mistake on the funeral director's part. Each time the pallet's bearers attempted to climb the pyre, the king's body would slide off. After the third try, the wood slab was discarded, and Audenot was hauled up by a block and tackle. The funeral director, much embarrassed by all that had transpired, decided not to trust one more thing to others. He started the fire himself, but in his distraction he had forgotten to climb down the pyre before igniting it. Luckily he was wearing a loose robe, and, discarding it quickly, jumped to the ground, dressed only in his loincloth. Thus he barely, or almost barely, escaped becoming the first human sacrifice in Bandedonian history. Though he was quite distressed and apologized profusely to the queen and the assembled nobility, everyone agreed he had added to the spectacle. So it was decided, from that moment on, jumping from a burning pyre dressed only in a loincloth would be included in the ritual. Bryant stared at the flames as they rose into the sky. Even from thirty feet away he could feel their heat on his face. He stared at his father's body and frowned. Oh, look, they placed him upside down. That is not as it should be. But there was no time to correct the mistake. The flames had crept too close. Goodbye, father, he thought, feeling a tug at his heart. May you find a place of honor waiting for you in the heavenly halls. I pray I can accomplish all that you expect. Perhaps you'll watch over me from the heavens. I would like that. 
Hopefully you'll have an apartment with an eastern view, one that will allow you to look down on the castle. Queen Bee stared in silence, her teary eyes reflecting the flames. So many memories, she thought. A lifetime of serving others and, in turn, being served. Go forward to your afterlife, my husband, with an untroubled mind. You leave behind a mighty commonwealth, one your son will protect and serve. As for me, despite all the proposals I have received the past few days, I will not marry ever again. It is very flattering, though. Darren stood by his mother's side, staring at the pyre as well and looking most troubled. His stomach gurgled, interrupting the silence. His mother gave him a sidelong glance. Nerves, said the prince, and that was all. But inside he was cringing. Since an hour after he had downed Nightshade's so-called antidote, he had been suffering from excruciating pains, ones that had lingered on and on and came in regular intervals. They had kept him awake the whole first night, ultimately driving him into a corner, clutching his knees to his chest and gnashing his teeth. Had not Cower, the royal retainer, seen him like this before, most often when Darren had lost a large sum of money at the gambling tables, he might have thought something was urgently wrong. The next day had crawled by at a slug snail's pace, the pains just as intense and just as frequent. Convinced he was going to die, Darren had prayed fervently to each and every god that came to mind, promising to mend his ways and to forfeit the joust if only they would spare his life. By evening it seemed his prayers had been answered, for the pains were farther apart and less intense. Though awakened by a few light spasms, he had been able to sleep most of the next night, and now the pains were all but gone, the last spasm being the first since dawn. But this he blamed on himself. Not only had he awakened with a ravenous appetite and had eaten his fill, but he had also recanted his promise to the gods. The sun was near the peak of its arc when the fire had at last burned out. An urn containing the king's ashes was handed to the queen, who, crying out stridently, handed it to Bryant, who, in turn, wailed and handed it to Darren. Darren snorted grudgingly and handed it back to Bryant, who wailed again and returned it to his mother. This, too, was a ritual. In my studies I have learned the passing of the ashes began centuries ago and has remained unchanged except for one small detail. In earlier times the urn was not used. Mourners, having hot ashes dumped onto their naked palms, would cry out from pain and try to pass them on to someone else. Queen Bee held the urn at arm's length, presenting it to the parting crowd as she walked slowly toward the city. Be strong, she said to herself. Do not let the masses see you hurting. My, this urn is heavy. Once beyond the gate, she ascended the stone steps that led to the top of the battlements. There she leaned between two merlons and turned the urn upside down. With the air as still as it was, the ashes floated toward the ground, gently coming to rest on a blind beggar who, unaware of his good fortune, was then pelted by hundreds of coins for having been so blessed. The ceremony was now complete, and the crowd, 
which had been solemn and mournful, was suddenly charged with eager excitement. A thousand voices broke the silence at once, everyone talking about the tournament. Trumpets blared above the din, announcing its commencement, and, like an ocean, the crowd surged toward the grandstands, pushing and shoving to find a seat. Those that were slow to arrive found themselves out of luck. Even the battlements that overlooked the lists were packed with people, for this was an event no one wanted to miss. This was history in the making. Many kingdoms had been usurped, many had been won or lost in war, but never had two men faced each other on the field of honor and competed for a throne. Though I was many leagues away in Port Lancia, my thoughts were also on the joust. So too the entire town. Everywhere I went, people were chattering about the competition. Everyone seemed quite thrilled. But I, in truth, felt only trepidation. I have always been high-strung by nature, meaning that most things, no matter how inconsequential, tended to upset my constitution. I remember rushing to the temple of Brutus, god of worrywarts and malcontents, and praying there for hours in my usual seat. The moment Queen Bee turned the ceremonial urn upside down, Darren tossed his brother a flippant wave and started for the east end of the jousting field where his tent had been erected. Once inside, however, he stumbled to a lounge and collapsed upon it, clutching his stomach. No more, he pleaded. This is most unfair. I've suffered enough already. A stabbing pain gripped his midsection. He collected his legs beneath him and huddled in a tight ball. Blast you, nightshade! Blast your villainy! When I'm king, I'll shove a spit up your blubbery ass and roast you over a low flame! His heart ran lunatic in his chest. The room began to spin. A chorus of gurgles rose from his bowels, followed by a wave of icy chills. He broke wind, long and noxiously, trumpeting a whole octave before he was through. And then, to his great surprise, upon the expulsion of his gas, the pain quite suddenly disappeared. He waited, expecting its resurgence. A moment went by. Two, three... And when the pain did not return, he uncurled himself and rose slowly to his feet. He took a deep breath to steady himself. Well, that was interesting, thought Darren relieved. He held out his hands. They trembled. He shook them, then went to his table where Kawa had placed his chainmail gloves and helmet. Somehow, with the end of the pain, he knew the ordeal was over. He had lived through it, and now, as he donned his armor slowly, methodically, the time had come for him to achieve his victory, and, even more so, his revenge. If it were possible to be in two places at once, one might have been able to observe Bryand preparing in much the same manner. But Bryand was not alone. Along with Cower, there were three young men within the tent. Their names were Niles Willowbrook, Dwayne Pepperell, and Dylan Torkelstone, and they were the sons of Ordonaut's closest friends and allies. As boys, they had been Bryand and Darren's playmates. But as the years had passed, they had grown closer to Bryand, whose demeanor was more in keeping with their own. Though they had often quarreled, their loyalty to each other and to Bryand had remained unshakable throughout the years. 
I hope you won't take too long at this, griped Niles. He was of average height and build, with a long face and dark brown eyes that flashed often with impatience. His hair hung to his shoulders, unkempt and thick as a destrier's mane. His given name was Nileston, after his father, but he had always preferred the shortened version. I'm hungry, and when I'm hungry, you know how I get. Obnoxious, said Duane, tossing a smirk to the others. Niles paused and gave him an indignant look. Certainly not. I am never obnoxious. What I am is intense, and being hungry makes me even more so. He hefted Brian's sword and swung it from side to side. Watch it, will you? snapped Duane, hopping out of the sword's path. You almost nicked my nethermost end. <laughs> Yo, what? chortled Niles with a brash grin. You know what I mean. Duane was far from portly. He was, however, the tallest and huskiest among them, with a massive chest, thighs as thick as young trees, and, unfortunately, buttocks that were proportionately as big. Well, said Niles with a shrug, if your nethermost end weren't so large, I might be inclined to admit I was wrong. But the fact is your nether goes on forever. Therefore, I feel no need to apologize. Quiet, chided Dylan. He was the oldest and most serious-minded of the three. His friends claimed he was born with a perpetual scowl. He, too, had a formal name. It was Dillonsworth, though it was not the same as his father's. It was simply what his mother had fancied, and she had called him this until her final day. Any more from you and you'll break Brian's concentration, Niles snorted. He doesn't need to concentrate. You forget he's fighting Darren. Can we please get on with this? My stomach is growling. Take back what you said, insisted Duane. He had been stewing since his exchange with Niles. Very well, then. My stomach is not growling. It's purring. I mean about my bum. Niles grinned, unintimidated. Don't you mean your nethermost end? Enough, cried Dylan, gathering and leading them to the entrance of the tent. Remove yourselves before I split your heads open. You see what you did, said Niles to Duane as they were exiting. You made him mad. I did? Yes, you. Now he'll be peevish all day. When they had gone, Dylan shook his head and muttered. Adulpated fools. I'm surprised they can even dress themselves. Brian grinned but made no reply. Cower handed him his belt and waited patiently as he buckled it before presenting him his sword. Though the retainer spoke not a word, Brian knew he was upset. He could see it in his eyes. Thank you, Cower, said the prince simply, hoping he might coax him into a better mood. I appreciate your help. You're welcome, my lord, replied the retainer in a brittle tone. When Cower had learned of the joust, all the colour had drained from his face and his mouth had screwed up into a knot. Since then, he had been very polite to the prince and very efficient. Bryant knew he was furious with him. Dylan grabbed the prince's helmet and held it in the crook of his arm. Remember, keep your shield up. He rides high in his saddle. Aye, said Bryand. Don't couch your lance too soon, or he'll know where you intend to strike. Aye, said Bryand again. And remember to throw your weight behind your thrust. Dill, have you ever beaten me in a joust? Torkelstone paused and looked at him. He was not offended. He simply did not see the purpose of the question. 
No, then stop giving me advice. Dylan snorted at the rebuke and faced him squarely. Darren is a wily fellow with dozens of tricks up his sleeve. He chose the east side of the field purposely so you would be riding with the sun in your face. The sun will not save him, said Bryant flatly. Dylan frowned. I'm glad you think so. Just keep your wits about you, please. And if I don't, replied Bryant, if I should lose, what then? Would you follow me into exile? Dylan, who had never possessed a sense of humor in all his twenty-six years, gave Brian a stern look. Exile? Why, give Darren half the chance and he'll dispatch you to the underworld. But then, upon seeing the prince's grin, he realized Brian was mocking him. Ah, you're as bad as Niles and Duane sometimes. Brian's grin lengthened. If he had been given his choice of brothers, out of all the men in the kingdom, he would have chosen Dylan first, for there was no man he liked or respected more. Though he was oft-times long-winded and overbearing, especially when he considered himself in the right, he was also honest and straightforward. Beneath the stolid bearing he presented to the world lay a kind and generous soul. He was a man who, regardless of the consequences, would give anything of himself, anything he owned, to honor a friend's request. Have no fear, said Bryand, gripping Dylan's shoulder. I am taking this challenge seriously. Your gloves, my lord, said Cower frostily, handing them to the prince. And you, said Bryand, taking the gloves and cuffing the retainer lightly with them, stop walking around with that frown upon your face. You look like an old fishwife. My lord, replied Cower soberly, if I wish to frown, that is my business. Perhaps if you had tended to your business, I might not find it necessary to frown. Well said, commented Dylan. And when have I been remiss? asked Brian, indulging the retainer. I like it not, said Cower, growing bolder, that the fate of your father's kingdom now rests on a single joust. Why, and I shudder at the thought, what if something went amiss? What if your saddle girth failed? What if your horse unexpectedly stumbled? Your brother would be king. Think of that, my lord, your brother. Though I've cared for him all these years as I have you, there is something very odd about him. And the thought of him as our next king sends a chill racing up my spine. Brian eyed the retainer kindly. Often as a boy, Brian had been troubled by thoughts he was unable to express. Cower, by a word or two or a simple gesture, had always found a way to help him understand his feelings. Certainly there was no one who knew him better, his likes, his dislikes, even something as inconsequential as his favorite color. Which happened to be brown. I thank you both for your concern, said Brian, suppressing a grin. No man could ask for a more loyal pair of mother hens. He chuckled at their disapproving looks. Then, having had his fun, he sobered. But you need not worry. I have been preparing for this day for as long as I can remember. I am the rightful king of the land, and no one, least of all my brother, will keep me from my purpose. May the gods see it done, Cower muttered. Bryant pulled on his gloves, flexing his fingers, warming the leather into a second skin. His words had been bold. They were the words of a ruler, but they meant nothing without the confidence he had hoped to find inside himself. He turned away from them, wondering, Am I ready? Am I fully prepared? He thought of his father. His stature alone commanded the respect of his peers. Will I be as good a king?
Excuse me, your highness. Brian turned to the entrance of the tent. Niles had poked his head inside. There's someone here to see you. Duane poked his head in just above Niles. A very pretty someone. They stepped back and pulled the tent flaps with them, revealing Mian. She wore a simple unadorned kirtle. Over her shoulder was draped a shawl, the green and red colors of her clan. Her hair was plaited with a gold ribbon and coiled atop her head. At the sight of her, Brian's heart quickened and he stood for a moment, speechless. Though they were betrothed, they were practically strangers. Try asking her to come in, said Niles with a smirk, unless you want all this space between you. Brian gave her an awkward smile. Having his friends there was not helping any. Please. Mian entered the tent. Your Highness, said the princess, taking his hand and curtsying. With Cower and the others present, she addressed him in a formal manner. The crowd is so thick, the grandstands are so full, and the entrances are packed with those who were tardy finding seats. I feared the joust would begin before I could even see you. A different thought struck her. Unless, of course, you prefer to be alone. No, blurted the prince, pleased to see her. You are uh, a welcome distraction, supplied Duane, smiling. Bryand nodded. Uh, yes, yes, welcome, to be sure. She placed a silk kerchief in his hand, the color of a meadow in spring. It would please me if you carried this with you today. It would please me to carry it, replied the prince. He fidgeted a moment, not knowing what to do with it. Here, let me, said Mian, tucking it between his tunic and the suit of chainmail he wore. There was so much she wanted to tell him. She was terrified he would be hurt, perhaps killed. You'll be careful, won't you? Please, your highness, be careful. I will, replied the prince, holding her hand against his breast. He stared deep into her eyes, searching for words, elusive words. Speak, fool! Speak, you empty head! Mian saw the cloud pass over his face. You are troubled, I can tell. No, my lady, replied the prince. Then what is it? He smiled and shrugged. I only wonder why. N not why. How? I, I mean, how you, as nice as you are, n not nice, I don't mean nice. I, I mean, I do mean nice, but, but, but you are also so much more. That was lovely, said Niles, smirking. Very lovely. And here I thought you were Hemenhall when it came to women. Dylan cuffed him on the arm. Quiet, lout. You intrude where you have no business. Brian led her to the opening, and they lingered there for a moment in silence. He wanted to take her in his arms, to tell her about all the new and wondrous feelings she had awakened in him. But with his friends present, he simply kissed her on her palm and said, I'll look for you in the grandstand. He watched her cross the field, wanting to be king more than ever, a great king who did great things, each of them for her. It is time, Brian, said Dylan. Brian reached for the kerchief under his tunic. Then, with a nod to Dylan that signified his readiness, the four young men strode into the daylight. Immediately, the crowd began to cheer. The prince gazed at the royal box situated at the center of the grandstand to his left. The queen was sitting in the front row. She tossed him a dignified wave, then turned to the opposite end of the field. Brian's gaze followed along and came to rest on Darren as he emerged from his tent. Brian could not see his eyes, but he could feel his brother's hatred, even with the length of the field between them. The prince turned his attention to the grandstand on his right. At the center sat the council. Behind them was Mian with Blindella and their mother the Lady Ainoya. Mian was gazing at him while Blindella looked at Darren, or somewhere in between. 
He acknowledged Mian with a touch of his hand to his heart and felt the kerchief once more beneath his tunic. She grabbed her sister's scarf, the same color as the one at his breast, and waved to him. The royal trumpeters blew a long fanfare, signaling the start of the commencement ceremony. The crowd fell silent. Even the vendors, who, up until that moment, were busy selling pennants and roasted clobbernuts, tossed what was left of their wares into the crowd and went running for their seats. The two princes marched to the center of the field, then turned and stood before Lord Crushmore, the master-at-arms, who had ridden up to them upon a war-horse caparisoned in black. He was very old. Lord Crushmore, that is, though the horse was also getting on in years. He had, in fact, not only been the prince's instructor, but their father's as well. Strapped to his chest was the same boiled leather breastplate he had worn as a young warrior, only now it was cracked and moldy and seemed three sizes too big. Upon his head was a rusty flat-topped helmet, poking out from beneath were the thin silvery wisps of what remained of his hair. "'You have entered upon the field of honor," said the master-at-arms in a raspy but formal voice. He carried a ceremonial truncheon, which he touched to his helmet in salute. He paused, and squinted first at Brian and then at Darren. Uh, "'Don't I know you boys?' "'Aye, master,' said Bryand in a discreet tone. "'It is I, Bryand.' "'Who?' "'Bryand, master,' said the prince louder, "'remembering Crushmore was hard of hearing. "'Oh, of course. Then you must be what's-his-name.' "'Tis I,' said Darren through gritted teeth. "'Such disrespect would end the moment he was proclaimed king.' Crushmore took them in with his eyes. Though warmth was not his way, he cared for them. They had been his best students. Have you come to see the fight? The princes glanced at each other awkwardly. Then Bryant said, No, master, we are the fight. You? said Crushmore, taken aback. Does your father know about this? The king is dead, said Darren impatiently. Don't you remember? Crushmore's eyes narrowed as he scratched his chin with his baton. Let's see now, let's see now. Was he the one we burned this morning? Darren rolled his eyes. Yes! Well then, if the king is dead, which of you is to rule in his place? The winner of this joust! cried Darren angrily. A look of understanding dawned on Crushmore's face. Oh, so that's why they dressed me up. But then he returned to the troublesome subject. Does your mother know this? Aye, master, said Bryant patiently. Crushmore snorted through his nose. <laughs> this was most disconcerting. Very well, grumbled the swordmaster. But I tell you this truly. Had I known it was you who would step on to the field, I would not have agreed to officiate. He cleared his throat brusquely and was back to business. State your names for all to hear. Bryand was the first to speak, and in a voice filled with strength and pride said, Bryand, son of Ordenot, supreme ruler of Bandedon, and overlord of all the lands between the spreading bottoms and the mad highland clans. Darren sneered at his brother, and, in a voice just as powerful, exclaimed, Darren! Ditto! Sons of Ordenot, why are you met here on the field of honor? The princes replied in unison, To determine, to determine which, which of us, us will rule. rule. 
Do you swear to give quarter should one of you yield? Aye, answered Bryant without hesitation. Darren, on the other hand, was silent, the muscles at his jaw working. Crushmore waited for his reply, then scowled and leaned forward in his saddle. Have you drifted off again, boy, the way you used to? I heard you, replied the prince irascibly. Then will you give quarter? Darren peered at his brother, and as he did so, years of envy fomented in him. He was so very tired of sharing his features. If just once, while growing up, someone, upon passing by, had called him Darren instead of Brian, he sneered and gazed at Lord Crushmore. No, I will not give quarter. 